The History with Jackson podcast. So, hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I apologise if my voice is a little bit gravelly in this intro. Uh, I have got a cold, so I hope that doesn't affect you too much in this bit. It's not in the actual podcast, but in this episode, I speak to Luis Martinez Fernandez all about his brand new book with Peter Lang, When the World Turned Upside Down, Politics, Culture and the Unimaginable Events of 2019-2022. This was a really great interview. We had a wide-ranging discussion that touched on politics. Uh, It touched on America, Trump and Puerto Rico and Cuba. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed talking about some of my political and historical interests and I hope you guys learn a lot from it as well and you enjoy listening to it. Now, without further ado... I'll leave you with Luis to talk about when the world turned upside down. Hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. Today we are talking to professor, historian, writer Luis Martinez Fernandez all about his book, brand new book, When the World Turned Upside Down, Politics, Culture and the Unimaginable Events of 2019 to 2022. How are you doing Luis? I am doing very well, thank you and very appreciative of this opportunity to share my book with your audience. No, I I really, as we've just been saying before we went on to the call, I really enjoyed reading your book uh, as a historian who does politics as well. I felt that a lot of the discussion points that we're, we're going to look at today were unneeded areas of discussion. So I want to move on to my first question. What was the inspiration for this book? Because uh, it's you know relatively recent history. Well, that's that's a good lead question because behind every book, there must be inspiration. Uh, this is my seventh book, uh, which is very different from the previous ones. In the, in, in, in the previous instances, I had an idea for a book. I created a, a blueprint of the structure. I did the research. I wrote it. I polished it, polished it, polished it, and that was the process. And so, so I had a, a roadmap for each project. In this case, um, the circumstances were different. I, I became a nationally syndicated columnist with Creator Syndicate, and that forced me to write a weekly column. Uh, and, and there's no respite. You know, you, you have to turn in one. Uh, as I like to say, if you don't hit the the send button on Friday at 7 p.m., you turn into a pumpkin. So uh, I started writing columns, not thinking that I would put them together as a book. The idea of the book came later, and once the idea of the book uh, came to me, then I started writing columns so that they would fit the gap, fill the gaps within within the book that was taking shape. So it's very different approach. It's it's you know I asked that I asked that question to all of my guests, and it's a very different process from what I've heard from anyone else. How you you fit a lot of other work to fit into something, as opposed to you know building something all together as one. It's a very interesting process and very different. Within the book, you split it into nine sections, uh, and we're we're only going to touch on you know a sort a small part of the book. Um, so I just wanted to 
to ask about what was your decision then to split the book or why did you make that decision to to split the book into these sections very good uh in in preparation for our conversation i was reflecting on the book and the idea that came to me is that a book is a the book is a collection of 66 essays but the book itself is also an essay and What's wonderful about the the genre of the essay, as you know, the French origin of, of, of that word is that you're testing, and you're never done uh, until it gets printed. So it was a, a process of, of rethinking about the organization. The first idea was to organize it in terms of when the columns came out chronologically. That is not very interesting. Uh, So I thought a lot about how to repackage the columns, and I came up with the idea of nine different sections. Now, that came later in the game because once I selected the the nine sections, uh, of course, you know, there's one on the echoes of the Civil War. There's one on Cuba. There is one on global affairs. There's one on education. All areas that I have learned and, and studied. Uh, so once I did that, I was figuring out, well, what do I need in this section to round it up? So the process of the book coming together guided my decisions about what to write about. And, and as a reader, I really enjoyed having those those topics all put together because it made for a very coherent reading experience and you could tr- you could keep that train of thought going on and keep yourself thinking as well whilst reading those those sections of the book and I really enjoyed that now Luis we're we're both historians uh, and we're we're touching on the world of politics mostly with your with your book why is it important to have historians and in the recent history of the United States how has the expertise of historians been used? Because at the moment, we're having, uh, there's a lot of different discourses about the role of the historian, but also the role yeah. of the historian in society. Very important things to consider. Uh, I don't need to tell you or the audience that history as a discipline may be at its lowest point ever. It's interesting that so many of the things that I care about have been a hit over the last 15, 20 years, and I'm referring to the press, newspapers, for example, freedom, freedom of the press, academic freedom, uh, poetry, museums, public spending in those areas. All of these have been hit uh, quite hard over the past few years. My argument is that we need historians now more than ever. Due to the complexity and the interconnectedness of these global changes that we're already occurring, but the pandemic, which is at the heart of this book, uh, accelerated many of them. Uh, Things like uh, increased uh, inequality of wealth around the world and among nations, those, for example. If you're an executive, you, you don't have to live thinking about how to respond to the question is, why is it that you're an executive? But if you're a historian, it sort of comes with the territory. You know, the, 
the uncle who doesn't want you to study history. Why, why history? So, so we learn to respond to that. And I, I have three uh, main points to respond to that. One of them is that we use uh, history is almost like a telescope. And we use that telescope usually to look in one direction, which is the past. I argue that the skills, the intuition, the research methods of the historian allow us to turn that telescope to look towards the past. And many of my columns um, uh, offer that, that perspective. Secondly, uh, history is based on research. That's at the core of what we do. Historians develop an intuition. We don't talk about that much in terms of uh, when we discuss the, the discipline. Uh, also, historians are very much interested in the interconnectedness of human actions and reactions and historical developments. You know, if you're a political scientist, well, what do you study? You study politics. If you're an anthropologist, what do you study? Culture. Historians, we study all of those things in their interconnectedness, plus we understand change over time, plus we are very uh, attentive to the context in, uh, that we're studying. And then um, I think, and this is not uh, an, a new idea, uh, that history, which many people consider the least scientific of the social sciences, is indeed the most scientific. And I'll tell you why. Because other disciplines work with one or two variables, and we don't do that. We don't talk about variables, but we, we pay attention to all sorts of vir uh, variables, ideology, uh, climate, uh, the geography, um, social tensions. I, th I think that was probably the the best explanation of, of what we do as historians that I've, I've heard for a very long time. But also, uh, you know, for any school children, university students listening, a, a really good way to gain an idea of what we actually do and getting yes. down to the root of it. Um, because, you know, we, we've all, like you said, we've all had to deal with that question. Why are you a historian? Why do you do what you do? <laughs> and, you know, being able to talk about those things when people suddenly get it, they they understand why you do it. Now, some something you touched upon your answer there, and I really want to touch on a little bit more there is about political divide. And you you know, talking about the way that society is divided and people thinking about it and people not thinking about it. Within the US, there's a lot of political division. Uh, you know, one of the biggest ones is the the North-South divide, which has seemed to have reared its head again in recent years. And you also talk about the the historical parallels between pre uh, between today and the pre Civil War period. Now, I'd really like you to unpack this because I think this is a very very interesting and informative parallel that can really educate us in what's going on today. Yes, actually, the very first columns that I wrote, and they constitute the first section of the book. Um, that's where it began. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to uh, write an, an essay, a chapter for a book on U.S. and Caribbean relations, which is one of my fields. Uh, I thought I was done with that, but 
uh, people will continue to remind you of your sins, your early sins. So even though I'm not a historian of of U.S. Caribbean relations anymore, I, I accepted that that invitation. That forced me to read quite heavily on the uh, antebellum before the Civil War, the Civil War, and also the era of Reconstruction. So I, I, I found it very interesting that the things that I was reading uh, in, in the morning and, and afternoon for, for that research on the U.S. during that period, when I turned on the TV or I read newspapers, the same topics, the parallels were astonishing. Um, and what I call the echoes of the Civil War, there's so many of them, I can name a few, are really aligned with what we have seen in the United States beginning in 2008, which was the election of Barack Obama. And uh, people forget that uh, Lincoln, uh, when he was elected uh, in 1860, he was so unpopular in the South that he did not get a single vote. And when I say single vote, I mean ballot, not uh, representation. No. Um, so South Carolina immediately declared that an act of aggression. Now, move forward to 2008, and we find that the opposition party, the Republicans, just don't want to deal with uh, Barack Obama. And they begin to delegitimize him, that he was born somewhere else, that he's not a U.S. citizen. So we see that. Uh, the Civil War, of course, and the irony is that many people expressed that Obama's election was the end of a racial divide in this country. They called it post-racial period, nothing uh, further from the truth. It really aggravated tensions similar to those that we saw in the antebellum. By the way, uh, the antebellum, the 1850s, were characterized by an explosion of Southern violence. And we see that in the filibusters, for example, that went to Cuba, uh, Southern filibusters. Uh, another parallel or echo is the <laughs> the incredibly low esteem in which the population held some of the branches of government. Uh, we talk about the Supreme Court now being at its lowest, and it's of course a, a, a pact, if you will, Supreme Court. Well, uh, in the 1850s, we have the Taney Court, the Supreme Court, which uh, came up with a Dred Scott decision, which was against the rights of, of blacks. Um, the elimination through retirement or death of moderates, that's something that happened in the 1850s in, in, in this country. We see the same thing today. Moderates will simply not get elected uh, as a general rule. Um, and then um, similar vitriol. You know, I, one of the things I love doing, Jackson, is that I like to have fun with the readers. Uh, sometimes you play tricks. Uh, I'm Cuban, so I, that's something that is part of my culture, the humor and the writing. One of the columns is about 
uh, I forget the exact title, but it's about the, you know, violence and before the elections. But I don't tell the reader what elections. And I start quoting from newspapers. And uh, as it turns out, these were newspapers from the from 1860, uh, the the day and the day after Lincoln got elected and the day before. And the, the parallels are just incredible. The political violence, uh, accusations of, uh, of corruption. It's, it's fascinating. So the way I play with the reader is that only at the end do I tell them, well, this is not about now, 2020. These came out of newspapers from uh, 1860. I, cer- I certainly enjoyed reading um, this section, particularly that article, because when you when you start to draw those parallels out, you start to you start to think about things a little bit more and find more parallels. Uh, and 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 one pa- parallel I found is that you know these ideas of people feeling unrepresented and people feeling dis- disenfranchised within the system. And you know within your book, you also talk about people from two separate areas that also feel disenfranchised and perhaps unrepresented. Uh, and these are people from Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. Uh, and they, they are currently having battles or attempting to have battles for statehood. What is this battle and what is this battle for statehood and, and why is it an issue? Yes. Uh, uh, incidentally, my first book project, which came out of my master's dissertation, from the University of Puerto Rico was precisely on the subject of the pro-statehood party. And uh, I hate to admit it as a historian, but some problems don't seem to have solutions. And that's the case in Puerto Rico on the status, which is an island that is deeply divided. Uh, For the uh, audience that may not be familiar with this, 45% roughly of the voters want statehood, that is to turn Puerto Rico into a state of the United States. On the other hand, um, 45% or so want the current status to stay in place. That is not uh, feasible for a variety of reasons for the long term. Uh, there's a small minority that wants independence, and um, they just there's no consensus. Now, the case of Washington is very different because Washington, there is a consensus, uh, the District of Columbia. So what we see is that the cases of Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C., there's some similarities, historical similarities. But as I just said, in Puerto Rico, they're deeply divided. There's no consensus. You can't impose a formula, independence, statehood, or the current halfway status, uh, which is actually what's in place, but you can't impose the other ones because so many people are opposed to it. In the case of Washington, D.C., there is a consensus. Last numbers that I heard was about 85 to 90% of the population wanted. Uh, the District of Columbia to become a state of the Union. Now, we go back to the United States during the 1800s and the issue of balance of power in Congress was very touchy uh, because the country was continuously expanding 
what do you do with these new territories? Do you turn them into, because the U.S. was expanding, as you incorporate the states into the Union, some of them were slave states and some of them were free states. The formula, which I think worked very well, was, well, we're going to admit two at a time. We're going to admit one that is pro, uh, pro-slavery and one that is anti-slavery. That will not work today. Uh, and actually, that formula worked in 1959 when Alaska and Hawaii were brought into the Union. Hawaii was Democratic. Alaska was Republican. So that allowed for, you know, a give and take. Currently, it won't happen because Congress is so divided and both the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico are strongly Democratic. So no Republican will will actually embrace admitting uh, these territories and the district as states of the Union. It's, it's something that I've always been interested in looking at those, those battles for statehood. And it's, it's interesting to see that once again, it comes down to the historical parallels between, you know, what Congress was like then trying to maintain a balance of power whilst being polarized. And again, today, a polarized Congress trying to seek to stay, uh, to stay balanced. But something that you see within these politicians and the increased polarization is politicians seeking to impose terms on other politicians or politicians seeking to not use certain terms to describe themselves due to the connotations that Americans have imposed on those words. One of those terms is socialist. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same connotations it does here in Europe. Why, why, why is that? Why is there such a aversion for these people to use that term socialist? And what term do they want to be, to be called instead? Yeah, that's interesting. In one of the essays, I call socialism the S word, which is which is a an insult for the most part in the United States. You and your listeners uh, know that it's it's different in Europe. Uh, here, for some reason, the way that word is cast, uh, it it alludes to places like Cuba, uh, the former Soviet Union, places that were communist and were authoritarian and abused people were abused by the government um there's you know some people don't like to hear this uh because it's fashionable to say that the united states uh is not unique um uh, there's another word that that is used for that and i would say well the united states is unique in so many ways for one, in Europe, there's a medieval bedrock of, uh, of Catholic belief in the, the idea that society is an organism. We associate those thoughts with St. Thomas Aquinas. And if one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. Corporatism, that's, that's what it's called. In the United States, we don't have that bedrock of Catholicism. It was a frontier that was continuously moving. Individualism was was highlighted and something to be praised. Self-reliance, the I mean, Puritanism uh, is at the heart of that early culture in the United States that to this day we still have. It's interesting that, you know, the universities or some of the major universities 
early on, particularly Harvard and Yale, they were Puritan seminars. <laughs> uh, fast forward uh, several centuries, and they retain, and again, some people will not like me saying this, they retain that uh, Puritan self-righteousness, and you can see it in, in how those organizations work. Uh, but then on the other hand, they've lost all of the piety, which is an interesting way of, of looking at this. And I, I, certain, I certainly agree there, you know, from, from being a, a European, although some of my, my countrymen might not like that term, um, it's, <laughs> you, cer you certainly do see the differences between the European societies and British societies, which have these medieval bedrocks. And I think we take for granted that, you know, I've, I can sit in a building that's older than the United States, not really and not really bat an eyelid. Meanwhile, yes. America, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a huge disparity. Now, the, yeah. the period that you write about in your book um, is perhaps more recent, but you talk about three main themes that have dominated between 19, or 2019 and 2022, and that, uh, they are like civil unrest, COVID pandemic, and, and Donald Trump. Um, you know, the, these three are quite, they're quite big themes to unpack, but I think they are such significant factors in the shaping or what, how, and how they will shape America moving forward. So how are they currently affecting American history? And are they a product or a response to history? Because I think if we, I yeah. think placing these three things in historical context is, is important. Let me talk about something that relates to this. I mean, there's no reason to publish a collection of essays just because you wrote them. Essays, op-eds, which is what I've been writing recently, they have a short shelf time, right? I mean, you're, re you're reporting and commenting on something that is in the headlines. But as a historian, I also like to produce works that have a long shelf life. Uh, that will be relevant for years to come. I recognize <clears throat> that the factors that you described and, and many others sort of come together in this short period of time. And my intention was to take a photograph of those four years, 2019 to 2022, and the fact that I'm a historian, but I'm also a chronicler, because these are chronicles of what transpired, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, the COVID pandemic, a variety of other topics uh, that we saw. Authoritarianism, massive revolts. And, you know, this book is based on research. So you look at organizations that have indexes for social unrest and you measure that. Uh, there are organizations, the Economist Intelligence uh, Unit, uh, they have a, a democracy index. So you see that going up all the way up to around 2010 and then beginning to go down and then almost a drop fall. Um, and this holds true for certain countries. Now, what's interesting to see is that even though, and, and this is again why historians are important at the table, there is a current. Uh, towards authoritarianism, but then there's a 
democratic countercurrent. I was very happy to see in the news yesterday and today that uh, Sweden will be incorporated into NATO. That's an important, important step. Now, that tells us that while countries like China, Russia, North Korea, other authoritarian regimes, including Iran, are gaining strength, the counter uh, force is one of strengthening democracy. So the fact that there are now 32 NATO countries, most of them are democratic, some are on the sort of on the fence, um, is very interesting. Um, then other changes that we know were on their way already, like the obscene inequality of, of income and wealth, that was already mounting, and it's been mounting even in the U.S., which prides itself of having a strong middle class. That's been mounting for over 30 years. What happened as a result of the pandemic is that that was aggravated. And while poverty increased, 100 million people went into poverty throughout the world, then we have these um, you know, billionaires, multi-billionaires, whose income uh, multiplied by two or three at the same time. So these are interesting times. I, I, my hope is that uh, my book will be of use 20, 30 years from now for people trying to figure out what happened in those four years. I, th- I think I, I like the term that you use there to describe yourself and in, S- and in a way this book as in terms of being a chronicle and you being a chronicler. You know, you relate to those medieval chroniclers who who tell the story of, you know, the the Black Plague and and the different things that affected medieval yeah. Europe. Uh, and we don't seem to draw those parallels between ourselves and those people living at that time. But I also like how you you placed those those three big themes into historical context as well of democracy and and growing inequality, yeah. um, because. They definitely lead to the. You can see them leading to these these three themes, you know. For when you look back with hindsight, like you said, thirty years in the making. You know, when when history books will include sections on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it will be a narrative that has the main developments uh, looked at from another period, whether it's two or five or ten years now. When I was chronicling the war in Ukraine, and I wrote in some of those columns, we did not know whether Zelensky would be alive the following week. And uh, I capture that moment in the columns, which is something that the chronicle chronicler does. Uh, the historian then may forget to include that fact, which was something that we lived. Uh, we were in fear of. Uh, the destruction of Kiev and and the leadership. Uh, I think I think you you bring a great point there. Is that when we look at medieval chronicles, we often look at them and think, well, why are they talking about that? Um, and and they're talking about that because they feel that it's mm-hmm. important. They're not writing their chronicles because they think someone else is going to find that 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 piece of information important yeah. in hundred years. They're writing it because it's important at that point. And I think. That was a great point that you bring with Zelensky. I mean, we're still at that that 
perhaps at that same point where we're not sure if he'll be alive next week or perhaps on the other foot, we're not sure if Putin will be alive next week. Yeah. I feel I feel like we have to to have a conversation about this point. You know, we've we've mentioned Donald Trump and we're talking about America politically in the years 2019 to 2022. And I, I don't I don't think we can talk about America politically in this time without without talking about the insurrection of January 6th. It is definitely a, a watershed moment in American history and American politics. It is a minefield, so I do want to tread carefully. But could you could you explain this event and, and how yes. it sits in American history? Because I definitely think it's an important yeah. event to have a discussion about. Yes, the, the subtitle of the book, which came later, uh, and the title actually came towards the end, The World Turned Upside Down. The subtitle is Politics, Culture, and the Unimaginable Events of 2019-2022. And at the top of those unimaginables is what, what transpired in January 6th. I have a, uh, an, an essay in the book in which I trace the developments from January the 4th through January the 6th and how there's this tension that is building. And it's a chronicle of, of that period. Now, I want to emphasize something, and this is something that I've been thinking about recently, and that is that Trump's presidency transformed politics in this country. So long after he's gone, uh, we're going to feel the consequences. Let me say one thing that you know some of my liberal friends and and, and I fancy myself as a progressive, but you know the word left. Uh, actually, I have a uh, I work on uh, editorial posters, and one of the posters is the left left, and uh, so I'm very critical of the pseudo left uh, in this country. Uh, and one of the things that they will not like is that the impact, uh, the cultural impact of Trump has also transformed the Democratic Party. Let me give you two examples. Uh, a dismissive president who doesn't want to respond. I don't think we had that before to, to the extent that we've seen. So just, you know, dismissing uh, the press, for example. And also, if you look at the persons in charge of the, the press room, of the presidency, we saw the kinds of individuals that Trump brought to the position of press secretary, uh, how they were dismissive, uninformed, lying. Uh, that cultural change also affects the Democratic Party. I mean, the last two uh, press secretaries, and again, some people are going to get upset, they are in that cultural fashion dismissive, half-truths, and, you know, we're going to live with Trumpism for a long time. It's certainly, you know, from a British perspective, watching that, that cultural impact on, on America, it's been, it's been very interesting, you know, having, having grown up with Obama and, and, and Bush, who, whilst they both had their faults, they were both very willing to speak to the media um you always saw them in front of a camera um one thing that one thing that has certainly become uh a meme amongst people of my generation is george bush saying like talking to the media and then saying watch this drive 
So even on the golf course, he's still talking to the media. But, you know, watching the impact of Trump as well, it's also spread to to Europe and, and Britain where mm-hmm. similar know. similar <laughs> things are, are happening as well. Um, and, nice, and recent news reports about Trump and, and, and his actions on that day have even added further weight to that moment. I wanted to, to again, touch on, you know, different relationships with the US. You know, we've, we've looked at the US in mainly isolation. And I wanted to look at two countries that have a very different relationship with the United States. And we've already talked about, talked about Puerto Rico, but I, I wanted to explore the relationship a little bit more. And, and, and Cuba. So how different is their relationship with the United States? And we've, slightly, we've already touched partially on, on Puerto Rico's relationship. Yep. But how does history inform this relationship then? Because we're looking at how history has informed the relationships within the United States politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'd like to look at how that's informing political relationships outside. Yes, well, these two countries, Cuba and Puerto Rico, are neighbors close to one another. They share similar histories of colonialism, extended colonialism, slavery, the plantation. Uh, But as far as political culture, they couldn't be more different than they are. Um, I've written comparatively uh, on Cuba and Puerto Rico. One of my earlier books was Torn Between Empires, and it, it was a comparative history of those two countries during the 19th century. and. When you look at political culture, it is very, very different. Very, very different. Uh, Cubans have a revolutionary political culture going back to the 19th century. In Puerto Rico, we don't find that revolutionary political culture. It's one of lobbying with the metropolis. So, whereas, and I'm not saying that one is better than the other. Uh, I'm not making that judgment. Um, Puerto Rico is also more democratic than than Cuba uh, historically, but they're very different. One of the phrases that I use in this book and elsewhere is that history is the culture that we inherited. And uh, that means that our culture is the result of previous generations. And of course, we change culture uh, as well. And, you know, I'm thinking, for example, why, and I'm sorry to bring this to a personal level, why am I so rebellious in, in my history writing and, and iconoclastic, if you will? Well, one of my grandfathers fought the Spaniards in the War of Independence, and he was injured. And not that I have probably I do, a DNA of a warrior, but the the generations learned from the previous generations. So there was that generation of the wars of independence. Then there was a generation of the revolution of 1933. Then was a generation of the revolution of 1959. So you can almost trace, you know, the, the great-grandfather, the grandfather, the father, and the son, their heirs to that revolutionary culture. Now, the logical question would be, well, what happened to that revolutionary spirit? And and Cubans are living under uh, repression, uh, brutal repression. It's gotten worse than ever uh, over the last two or three years. 
Incidentally, as we're recording, it's July 11, which is the second anniversary of the Cuban rebellion. And we had not seen that. Uh, I'm a student of Cuba and the Cuban Revolution. I wrote the book Revolutionary Cuba, a History, and I was not anticipating that, that massive uh, demonstration of uh, just being tired of the oppression. That's one of the unimaginables of, of that period, by the way. Puerto Rico has had a different history, and um, I am a fan of Luis Muñoz Marin. It's fashionable to attack him these days, but he was the architect of modern Puerto Rico. Now, he was a pro-independence. He really wanted independence, but he knew that given the circumstances, the best formula for the time was not independence, but it was rather to uh, bring the United States and Puerto Rico together in a way that benefited the island. And he orchestrated uh, the modernization of Puerto Rico. And, you know, uh, it, it's interesting because what happened in Puerto Rico, which is the modernization and the industrialization, happened within 20 years or so. Now, you're an English historian. You know that it took over a century for modernization and industrialization to occur in, in Great Britain. In the United States, it took about 50 or 60 years. But in Puerto Rico, it happened within that period of 15 to 20 years. The island was transformed completely without any uh, military struggles, without rebellions, and it was a peaceful revolution. It's, it's interesting to hear about those two differences because I think what we hear about a lot here in Europe is we hear an awful lot about, about Cuba. Um, <laughs> and probably that history of that region is very Cuban-centric. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to, to hear how the different, uh, there are different cultures, different political cultures going yeah. off in these different areas and how that informs different relationships as well. Yeah. Now. I wanted to I wanted to ask you this question as well about your book. It's it's been a year or it's been seven months since twenty twenty two. Um and I wanted to ask you, have you had any further reflections on your work since it was published? Because I found when reading it, a lot of it sits and we've discussed it in detail as well, a lot of this sits at the intersection between history and politics and, and both of them move very, very quickly. Um, so I wanted to hear if you've had any further reflections. Well, uh, it's a good thing to talk about because where and when do you cut off and say no more, the book is done, I'm not going to add any more essays to it. So that was in December of 2022. And uh, one of the reasons why I sort of stopped writing columns was that I sensed another dramatic change, and that is chat GPT. Uh, you, philosophers, students of technology, uh, political scientists recognize that this is a fundamental change in an incredible magnitude that does not compare with. Uh, other technological advances. Let me give you an example. I'm old enough to remember the Jetsons. 
that TV program with cartoons and they were in the future and they would drive these cars that would fly. Uh, well, recently I saw in the United States that there's a, a new company that is about to release those to, to the market. Now, if you think about it, going from a car that drives on the ground to a car that flies is not that much in terms of, of, of change. But when we talk about ChatGPT, we're really talking about a very dangerous fusion of humans and machines. I, I tested ChatGPT, and that was one of my last columns, actually. Um, and I asked ChatGPT, uh, write a column in the style of Luis Martinez Fernandez. <laughs> it was not very good, uh, but there was something there. And as this technology uh, evolves, there may be no place for me as a historian and columnist. Uh, sorry to say this, Jackson, for you as a podcaster. I don't know. I don't like it. And when we have these uh, individuals like Musk and others that are so wealthy and so self-absorbed and uh, engaging in in these dramatic transformations that affect society, it doesn't end well. I'm sorry to say. You know, I I definitely see. I see. I see quite a few concerns with it as well. You know. Uh... When you when you hear stories of undergrads writing their essays and just telling ChatGPT write this, you're like, God, yeah. like you you really need to you need to do it yourself. And you know, I think one of the big things that also I've I've come across as well as the music industry, you know, AI songs of of artists yeah. charting. Um, you start to see the, the concerns with uh, AI yeah. and and I'm I'm not I'm, yeah. I'm on board with you as well. I don't think ChatGPT is that great at the moment when you ask it a question there's yeah. its sources are incorrect well, well some people say that it's a useful tool yeah everybody who comes agree. with the technology will say that it's a useful tool uh they're not going to be around to clean up the mess of what they've created and they say well it helps you getting ideas it helps you for example finding a title for an essay you know I had fun working on the title of my book and the title of every column. That's a skill that you develop. If you let a machine do it, then you don't develop that skill. They say that, well, it helps with the research. Okay, so what do we do <laughs> when people have lost the ability to conduct research? That is very dangerous. So it's not just the, the essay that students turn in. It is that we lose all of these very important skills that we've had for centuries. Now, that's very dangerous terrain because if we lose the ability to discern, the ability to conduct research, the ability to evaluate sources, anything can happen. And I, I'm, 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 certainly, I'm certainly concerned about that direction. Uh, particularly as a young person who wants to have a career in that area as well. So, yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I've had my good career of over forty years, but I'm especially concerned for 
your generation and the generations that come after. You know, I'm a grandfather. You know, what kind of a world are we going to have for my grandchildren? Now I'd like to ask you a question I don't think ChatGPT could ask you. Um, <laughs> so within, within your book, you, you talk about a lot about culture. And of course, within culture mm-hmm. comes food. You also mentioned coffee. I'm a big fan of that. I do love my coffee. Yes. What, is, what is your perfect meal? That's the final oh. fun question as we do for everyone here. You know, in preparation for this conversation, I went back to my brain archive <laughs> and I was reminded of a column that I want to write, which I think I'm going to send to, uh, you know, the right place for publication. And it is historical as a historian. And it's the Waterloo banquet. Okay. Okay, so we start with Belgian fries or Brussels sprouts. Then we have, uh, well, of course, champagne. Um, then we have the, the highlight of the banquet, which is Beef Wellington. Some of you will recognize him. Uh, and then for dessert, we're going to have uh, Mulfeuille, which is a Napoleon. So I'm still working on that banquet. Uh, but that would be my favorite meal. I love beef Wellington. I, I think I think you've chosen a fantastic meal there. I think I would certainly join you on that banquet there. I've really enjoyed our conversation together, Luis. I think I've learned I've learned so much, and I've I've looked at things that you've written in your book in a, in a different way as well. And I'm I'm certain our readers, are, or our listeners, are going to want to go away and and find you and and grab a copy of your book. So how can they find you and, and your book online? Yes, uh, they can go to Amazon and type in the title, When the World Turned Upside Down, Politics, Culture, and the Unimaginable Events of 2019. They can also visit the publisher's webpage, which is Peter Lang. Um, it shouldn't be hard to find it. And again, I, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Even though I'm not a fan of Zoom and similar technologies, it's a technology that has allowed us to connect as two human beings and, uh, and then connect with a broader audience. Uh, ChatGPT and other things uh, are not the same. They're, they're going to create uh, different experiences. And I, I think that we were made to have interactions. We're social beings. And one of the things that really concerns me is the isolation of some of the younger generation where they, they're in TikTok, which is such an insidious uh, technology. They disconnect. And then we have epidemics of mental illness and things of that sort. So I'm a strong believer in the human interaction face-to-face, even if it's through cameras. Well, I, I'm certainly grateful for, for technology within this conversation because I think without, without LinkedIn, yeah. without this, we, you know, we would never have had this conversation and I never would have been able to, to talk to you in great length about some of the discussion points that I wanted to, to bring to people about your book. So thank you very much, Luis. Thank you. Let's stay in touch and maybe someday we can find a way of collaborating in some projects. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Well, thank you very much for listening, guys. And I will speak to you all next episode.